0: Hello and welcome to
1: the Music Teacher Coffee Talk Podcast. I'm Tanya. And I'm Carrie. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee or perhaps an iced coffee for the summer. This is episode 114. Today we'll be kicking off our 2022 Summer Book Club and we'll be discussing part one of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. We'll also do a fun summer quiz...
0: And in our coda section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started.
1: So normally at this time, we discuss highs and lows from our teaching week, but hey, it's summer, so that's not happening. And instead, we're going to replace it with some fun summer quiz time. I'm going to be giving Tanya a little quiz, and this is just a totally random quiz that I found on BuzzFeed that I thought would be fun. Okay. Um, Tanya and I are, are proud Gen Xers, although Tanya is more solidly Gen Xer than me. I'm I'm that weird cusp of kind of a Gen X or almost a millennial but to this um, day it's almost like just calling me old and that's okay No, we are proud of this generation. And so, given that fact, I'm going to give Tanya a quiz. Now, I don't love the title of this quiz because it says, this is a Boomer and Gen Xer 1980s quiz. But we're just going to take Boomer out. We're going to say, this is a Gen Xer 1980s quiz that no Gen Zer or Millennial could realistically do well at. So, those of you who are Can I just say
0: that Gen X and Boomer are not the same, please? No,
1: they're not the same. They're
0: not the same at all. No. Right.
1: My so, so parents are boomers. <laughs> those of you who are are more of the Gen Z or, or millennial uh, crowd, see if you can get these answers right, and we'll see if Tanya can get these right. And this is just all about, like, history, culture, everything going on in the 80s, not necessarily music-specific. So, Tanya, are you oh, ready?
0: Okay. Oh, gosh, yeah. Now okay. I'm nervous because I can do music really well, but I don't know about the rest of the 80s. There, well, stuff. the
1: very first one is a music question so which of these songs was tina turner's big comeback single what's love got to do with it i was gonna say there are it's it's multiple choice but sometimes you might not need it um the choices were private dancer the best or what's love got to do with it tanya says what's love got to do with it and guess what ding 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 you're right all right tv question which tv show featured the infamous who shot jr cliffhanger storyline dallas yes Very good. I didn't even watch that show. Uh, Yeah, I didn't either, but everyone knew that was like a thing in the 80s. Yes. All right. Who did Ronald Reagan defeat in the 1980 presidential election?
0: Oh, now you're going to have to give me the choices.
1: Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter, or Ted Kennedy?
0: Walter Mondale. Right? Jimmy Carter. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, no. Well, when did – see, this is – look i'm showing my ignorance okay no,
1: it's fine well we weren't voting in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> that's true i did not vote that's my.
0: Jeez! wow all
1: right okay. judging. all right well here's a here's a more pop culture question which okay. soda brand infamously changed its formula in 1985 coke choice there coke 7up or pepsi are you sticking with your answer coke okay ding 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 that is correct because crystal pepsi didn't come out until 90s i believe oh yeah that was a thing oh man that was gross yeah that was really gross
0: and so is new coke and now they don't have new coke they just called it like the original coke classic and i think now they've dropped the classic because they and dropped I the new know. coke it's just yeah.
1: coca-cola now i guess yeah. i don't know um oh i know you're gonna know this one Dolly parton jane fonda and lily nine Coughlin, to five which would be together <laughs> 9, to, nine five to 5, Working Girls, or Broadcast News, and the answer is? 9 to 5. 9 to 5, you got it. Okay. Right.
0: Oh, my um, God. Gosh. Okay.
1: Now you've got a song stuck in your head. I'm I'm still smarting over Jimmy Carter. <laughs> oh, man. It's all sad. Good. Which of these was not a popular author of the 1980s? Danielle Steele, Sidney Sheldon, or Jonathan Franzen?
0: Jonathan Franzen.
1: You are correct. I think that one.
0: Oh, okay. He's much more two thousands, right?
1: Yeah. I I don't know. Okay. Um, this is a sad one. What was the name of the space shuttle that tragically exploded shortly after takeoff in nineteen eighty six?
0: The Challenger.
1: Yeah, Columbia Challenger or Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that in school. That was really I remember
0: I was home that day because i had just had my wisdom teeth pulled and so i was napping and listening to the news and it all got tangled in my dreams
1: yeah um
0: because i was on some some pain meds for that and uh, yeah that was
1: crazy yeah horrible very sad day who was johnny Carson's sidekick and announcer on the tonight show ed mcmahon doc severinson or don rickles ed mcmahon that is correct Doc Severinsen was the musician, right?
0: Yes, yes, he was the band leader for many years.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which toy line caused an absolute frenzy in 1983? Care Cabbage Bears, Patch Kids. Teddy Ruxpin or Cabbage Patch Kids? <laughs> Yes, it was Cabbage Patch Kids. I remember getting a Cabbage Patch Kid. I don't think that year. I think like the next year I got one.
0: My sister got one. I was a little too old and I thought they were freaky looking.
1: They were. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was the whole Garbage Pail Kid cards. Oh, those were gross. Yeah. Gross. oh sorry this one is a picture that i'm supposed to show you but i bet if i describe it to you you'll figure it out okay um it says this is a scene from which share music video and Cher is wearing a very risque outfit it looks like two strips of duct tape in a v formation going down the front of her body and a leather jacket and she's on like a navy ship do you remember um, that video? Oh, your choices are, if I could turn back time, I found someone, or just like Jesse James.
0: If I could turn back time, it's yeah. got
1: to be. if I could turn back time. Man, that video was, whoa, risque at the time. <laughs> I can't even remember that video, honestly. Okay, well, we'll have to link it in the show notes now. No, no, we don't. Uh, <laughs> what was the name of the anti-drug campaign slogan that First Lady Nancy Reagan created? Dare yeah winners don't do drugs just say no or dare to say no to drugs
0: dare which stood for D A R Uh, I. actually
1: you know what they're saying the answer is just say no because that was the slogan what really did she come up with dare i remember dare being you know the school program but did she come up with that i don't know that's a little confusing okay they're saying her slogan is just say no Okay, well, and here's just... how I remember because in the bowling alley, my mom was on a bowling league and I used to go hang out and there was a pinball machine and there was like a caricature of Nancy Reagan with a just say no t-shirt on on this pinball machine.
0: Wow, you know, it's so very 80s it's... and so it 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 also reminds me of the Nike slogan just do it. Like yeah. when you put the just in there, you you know that it's kind of flawed because <laughs> It's not a simple thing. And this slogan is saying, this is a simple thing. Just say no. Just do it. Just.
1: Uh Uh-oh, here comes another political one. Okay. Okay, In 1989, ooh, this is the tail end of the 80s, President George H.W. Bush did a now rather infamous live television address saying that DEA agents had arrested someone for selling what drug across the street from the White House at Lafayette Park? Wow. Do you remember this?
0: I don't remember this, but read the multiple. Your choices places.
1: are heroin, marijuana, or crack.
0: Well, it sounds like it should be crack.
1: I mean, yeah, that's the right answer. I don't remember this event. I.
0: It was all about crack in the late 80s. Apparently.
1: That, well, that was the one you're going to know. Okay. okay. What was the name of the baby rescued from a well in 1987? Was that baby jessica that was baby jessica sorry the other choices were amanda or heather but we already know the answer now
0: heather i could talk about heathers but no
1: (laughs) well yeah that's a very 80s name oh okay i'm gonna skip this one because it's another picture okay madonna caused a commotion when she performed a song while dressed in a wedding dress like
0: a virgin
1: the very first vmas the very first vmas in 1984 yes like a virgin is the correct answer all right. In the early 80s, Jane Fonda launched what successful venture? Her own women's issue magazine called Jane, her, her own, own aerobic line, tapes. or her own series of workout videos. I used to do
0: one in the mornings, sometimes yes. with my mom. Yes, workout for workout videos.
1: It. Oh, yeah. What was the name of the hamburger that McDonald's introduced in 1985 that was served in a styrofoam container that separated the hot burger patty from the bottom part of the burger? You know, the I McTasty, don't... the McClassic, or the McDLT? It's the DLT, right? No, is it the Tasty? I really I don't I... know. What's your final answer?
0: Um, I'm gonna go with. the tasty mctasty McTasty?
1: no it was the mcdlt all
0: right so clearly i wasn't into those and i don't know no shame there
1: true or false pac-man inspired a hit song
0: yes pac-man fever it's driving me crazy i've got pac-man fever going out of my mind it's such a dumb song
1: yeah, I barely remember that. Okay, and finally, prior to starring on The Golden Girls, Betty White was best known for starring on which classic TV show?
0: Oh, you might have to read these to me.
1: All in the Family, The Mary Tyler Moore Show,
0: or Mary Tyler Bob, Moore,
1: the Bob Newhart Show.
0: She the- was she was like one of the workers at the. Uh, I think correct. she was a secretary in the office of the Mary Tyler Moore Show.
1: All right. Well, you almost got them all right, Tanya. Nice job. Oh man. So now you have to come up with a quiz for me next time. It'll be all politics. Oh boy.
0: <laughs> and now time for our main theme. We are discussing the first 5 chapters four part chapters. 1. Oh, sorry, 4 chapters, excuse me. Uh, part one of culturally responsive teaching and the brain by Zaretta Hammond, and as Carrie and I were talking about talking about this book, we kind of got tangled up with specifics in each chapter, and 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 really started talking like we should be recording. So we've got some basic outlines of things that we want to touch on with each chapter, but um, here we go. Okay, yeah. so. Uh, for this book, when we get to chapter one and there's a great introduction and and all of that, but we're talking about climbing out of the achievement gap and the difference between dependent learners and independent learners and how there has been a huge achievement gap for many years in the United States school systems. Um, And so there's a lot of things that are mentioned in this chapter that you really need to accept before you move forward towards wanting to become a culturally responsive teacher and to work on that. Um, And we're
1: assuming that if you're reading with us and you're listening, you you are of the mindset that you're ready to begin this work. We mention this, however, knowing that if you are In not necessarily a book study, but you know in any conversations with other people in your area or district who are not of the mindset of being ready to do this work and not willing to accept some of the things that this book discusses, we know that that can be a challenge, but this book can be an advocacy tool for you to have those conversations within your area as well. One thing I want to mention too is I just really enjoy reading this book. I guess I was a little bit nervous coming into it thinking this is going to be really heavy reading and it's it's, it's going to be just really slow reading. I, I found myself being able to read this kind of not quickly, but like, it's enjoyable. Like I just appreciate the way this book is written in very like easy to understand language. It's just, everything is laid out in a way that makes it really easy for me to understand and begin to process. So I just want to say that I really appreciate the way this book is written.
0: Yes. Yes. I, I agree. Um, I do. I, I thought that it was a really important in chapter one to get some of these ideas, um, solid before we move forward you yeah and I, I, I agree that it was good reading and I'm glad I have some background knowledge um, before we dove into this like Carrie I know that earlier I was saying you know it's about time that we read this book and I was thinking maybe we should have read earlier I think right now as far as what you and I have done reading wise together this is like the perfect time for that. And I think we were set up for this. Can I read something from page 14?
1: Yes, please.
0: Just connected to what we were saying earlier. Um, as educators, we have to recognize that we help maintain the achievement gap when we don't teach advanced cognitive skills to students we label as disadvantaged because of their language gender race or socioeconomic status many children start school with small learning gaps but as they progress through school the gap between african american and latino and white students grows because we don't teach them how to be independent learners based on these labels we usually do the okay so then there's a a list of what we as teachers focus on based on some labels now if you're not willing to accept the idea that there is a gap in the first place or that that African American Latino and we can bring in other identities into this, that there is um a system that works to keep them marginalized, then this book is you're not, probably not listening right um but <laughs> that this right. book is going to be hard, very challenging. Yeah.
1: I also think about for those people who are listening who have taught in maybe a mostly white suburban setting and you haven't come across some of these issues in your own teaching, I will say, having taught in Title I schools my whole career thus far and having taught in schools that have a large hispanic or latino population i see this all the time and you know this idea of our kids can't do this our kids can't process this way our kids don't think this way and it is so frustrating um to to hear that but i understand it's it's this implicit you know implicit bias coming through of this is this is what these kids can do and this is what's too hard for them you know this idea of that so it this this problem does exist it's very real and you know hearing you know educated teachers who who love and care about these kids say things like our kids can't do this kind of stuff it's very disheartening and it's a very real problem
0: yeah exactly so recognizing those issues right away is extremely important because we can't move forward um when we don't have some things in place
1: exactly so really the the purpose of this chapter is really to set up what the rest of the book is going to be like as far as um, the four practice areas of uh, CRT, culturally responsive teaching. And she talks about how it's not like a, a linear thing. These four things all kind of work together in tandem. But throughout the book, she's gonna be addressing these different areas of awareness, of learning partnerships, of information processing, and then community of learners and learning environment being the four main areas of CRT. And then the the next few chapters that we are going to be discussing today really are in that awareness section.
0: Yeah. So can we talk for a second about those for Ready for Rigor framework? Um, ideas because I was really that's on page 17 if you're following along Um, we talk about like you said awareness, learning partnerships, information processing and community of learners and learning environment as a music educator I was really drawn towards this idea of information processing um, and the second point down help students present process new content using methods from oral traditions, which she gets into more later and how that really spoke to me and made me think, wow, what do we do as music educators? Mm -hmm. Especially in elementary school, we are primarily teaching through oral methods, oral strategies and using oral tradition because it's just inherent in music, especially teaching music to young children, right? But we
1: also very much, especially in Western European-based traditions, move very quickly to music literacy. And are we doing enough with the oral traditions? This is well, we've talked. And then, how you do about. you,
0: how do you define music literacy? Exactly. Are we, are we talking about reading Western notation from a
1: page? Right.
0: What does music literacy mean, really anymore? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So that information processing, I found really um, helpful and made me think, Hey, cool. I'm so happy to be a music educator. And I'm now look at that. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as I was reading, I was thinking about my own deficits or my own, um, ways of teaching, but also, you know, things that I think are positives, like oral traditions, um, within my classroom. And when I look at this, framework, I think that the community of learners and learning environment is something that w- when one teaches a rotating environment, a rotating community of learners, like yeah. I'm thinking about how do we apply any of these ideas or all of these ideas towards a shift. And I, I'm i sure if you've been teaching for any amount of time, you understand that you have classrooms of kids who come to you and they vary, like sometimes widely from how they're able to process information, their enthusiasm, their um, behavior, their ways of attending or not attending to tasks in the music room. Mm -hmm. And for many years I've, I've thought, It's really interesting to see how that develops over the school year Mm -hmm. and the teachers influence on that and like individual students influence on that um and i'm just thinking about well when it's mentioned use classroom rituals and routines to support a culture of learning like i try to apply the same routines the same rituals in my classroom but i do notice that throughout the school year i'll tweak based on the specific students that are in the room. Um, But that's just a really interesting thing to think about as someone who teaches lots of, I guess, mini cultures.
1: Sure. I was thinking when I was looking at this chart on page 17 about the overlaps of the books we've read in our previous summer book clubs and where those overlaps are occurring. So for me, I was thinking about when we read Um, music and social emotional learning by Scott Edgar, like that is obviously really going to overlap with the quadrant of community learners and learning environment, because that's all about that building of relationships and making sure students feel seen and heard and, you know, the importance of that. And then I was thinking about the book that we read, um, Teaching for Musical Understanding, and Mm -hmm. how that really for me, had a lot to do with both the information processing and the learning partnership sections where it really talks about, you know, that balance between giving students background information, but then pushing them further with their own thinking, giving students more agency and more, you know, push for them to show more independent thinking in their work. Um, So anyways, that was kind of also what I was thinking too, like, obviously, you know, we hear that quote, good teaching is good teaching. But when we focus in on a specific, you know, thought process in these book studies that we're doing, how can all of these things kind of overlap to create, you know, what we are all looking for is like this comprehensive, cohesive, positive experience for our students and for ourselves, you know, that's the end yeah. goal.
0: Can I just say, I've always hated that phrase, good teaching is good teaching. Because exactly. I think it, yeah. it really dumbs down and generalizes all the things that need to be in place for good teaching to be good teaching. And well, it also, assumes, yeah. yeah, it also assumes that teaching, um, exists in isolation without the input of the people of the learners, right. like, right. like you're a sta- sage on the stage and you teach good and then everything's awesome and yeah so anyway but maybe i'm reading too much into that no but this is what i'm
1: saying like when you look at this chart and all of the things that we're trying to do and this is just a little one page summary of all the things we're trying to do all the time yeah that is definitely a a phrase that doesn't encompass everything that we're doing if we're doing the work so all right can well we shall we move... move on to chapter two? That's exactly
0: what I was gonna say.
1: Okay. Be okay.
0: Sure. So there is a and I'm sure if you've been around, you've seen this graphic on page 24 of a culture a culture tree. And in this chapter. Oh, look,
1: hold on. Can we back up and say chapter two is called What's Culture Got to Do with It? Yes, I yes. Just yes. want to make sure we know. So what we're talking, we're talking about,
0: about. about culture and its influence on learning. Yes, right? thank you.
1: Okay, now go ahead.
0: So, in case in case one didn't think that culture has anything to do with how one learns, we learn. Um, yes, it has a lot to do. Your culture really influences greatly how you learn, what you learn, because you've built some schema before you have even entered school, mm-hmm. and that's going to affect lots of things. And okay, so we've got this culture tree, and in, in this chapter she describes. Um, That a lot of times we see culture represented with an image of an iceberg with Mm -hmm. the surface culture on top. Um, But this is this is a better representation, I think, for sure. Because we see a tree and then the leaves have things like on surface culture, like food, art, songs, holidays, hairstyles, clothes, dance, stories, literature. Um, And then we see the root, the branches going down into the trunk and the trunk is... Um, nature of relationships, eye contact, personal space, acceptable food, food sources, being honest, nonverbal communication, like some of these deeper things that are not really spoken of and not always, um, brought out and and talked about, and then we see the roots, the deep culture, the collective unconscious, the beliefs and norms, the intense emotional impact on trust, which are, which are big.
1: Yeah. And the thing that, you know, she mentions that the reason why this tree image is a little more powerful than the iceberg is because that deep culture, that root system doesn't experience a lot of change or if any change, that is what is, you know, embedded into your culture, the things that you don't even think about because they're so embedded into your culture and they're not affected by other things where the things that we see on the, you know... The surface culture and the shallow culture, the things on the the leaves and the things above the ground, those are things that change and are Mm affected by, you know, the way your culture interacts with other cultures and the things going on in the world around you. So, um, yeah, this image of the tree is really helpful in that way of knowing what things can be affected by others and what things aren't going to be affected by others.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, that's a lot to dig into. Um, And then... There's a very fascinating discussion in the next couple pages about collectivism yes. versus individualism, which is something that is always great to keep in mind because as a citizen of the United States and understanding that we are a highly individualistic society, that that really colors our teaching, our practices, how we think of learning. Yeah. Um, because in other cultures like Guatemala is um at a point where they are highly collective in their society. And you hear this phrase of it takes a village.
1: Yeah.
0: And the US does not really take a village. It's funny because um I'm not on TikTok officially, but of course I see reels and have you seen the one recently, Carrie, with um there's been several of them, like overstressed mom and the voiceover is like, okay, so they say it takes a village to raise a child. How does that work? Do I call the village? <laughs> Where is, is the village? Where's like, how do I reach the village? Is there a number? Yeah. Yeah.
1: hotline." Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's very true. And, you know, it talked, it has this lovely chart where it's showing, you know, countries that have a high level of individualism versus collectivism. And of course, it's United States is the top. And then we're looking at a lot of uh, Western European countries, as well as Australia and New Zealand coming right after it. And then as you go down the chart, we're seeing um, more Hispanic, Latino communities and cultures, as well as African countries, um, definitely at the bottom of that chart. And so, if we think about students in our own classroom that are coming from those cultures, what are we doing to address that desire for that that group feeling? Then, how are we promoting that relationship? And cooperative learning model in our classroom for all of our students um, mm-hmm. because it is so important and again this is where we as music educators maybe have a little bit of an edge because uh, over like if i think about a traditional classroom teacher because so much of our music making is group music making yeah um, but i know something you and i have talked about many times in many contexts tanya is Um, I, I find myself doing a lot of whole group and then I find myself doing a lot of individual activities where I feel like I can do more is small group cooperative activities where students are doing a composition together in a small group and then performing it or students are practicing something with a small group or working out a problem with a small group. So I think that's definitely an area of growth in my own classroom when I'm thinking about this idea.
0: Oh, I agree. And, I, and I, I was thinking about how, you know, this idea of individualistic um, practice has really been baked into me because of my culture, just because yeah. of how I grew up, is that I often just find myself default into the idea of like, okay, group work that's fine and it might be a way to hone my own skills but then like thinking about music specifically the real work and the real learning happens when i'm sitting and practicing mm-hmm. and i'm sitting on my own and getting it done and only relying on me and that's not necessarily um i mean it is a way to learn for sure but it's not the only way to learn right. and you know why am i valuing that over group work. Because like you were saying, like in my own classroom, I'm like, okay, group work is great because they get to connect with their community um, and they get to share. But the real learning happens when we're alone.
1: Right. And I know I've said this myself is like, especially when it comes to assessment, well, how can I assess them if they're doing something as a group? And I really want to know who's doing the work and who's just relying on their partner. But I have to get rid of that that way of thinking because for so many of our students, that is how they're going to learn best because that's what's of their culture. That's what's deep with rooted within them is this need to work and process and learn with others. And I can still see. And I mean, I, I, I've done this in my classroom. And when you sit back and you watch, you can still observe when students are working in groups and you can see how students are which students are needing a little bit more support from their group which students are the leaders and so you know i argue with myself about this fact all the time that you know even assessments don't have to be individual all the time assessments can be done within a group setting too
0: so i have a question for you um so and i've been thinking about this as i transition to a totally different school and community and yes. i've been thinking about you as well and do do you cuz i i know basically the culture of where you're coming from and the culture of the population of where you're going to mm-hmm. do you need to apply the same um attention towards group learning for example with a group of students who have been in a more individualistic, um, growing up learning, like I would think, yes, we do, because that's one of the nature of music. And also I think something that's not mentioned in here, but I think developmentally Mm -hmm. elementary school needs more, um, group work and group dynamics in learning, but you know what, maybe, maybe that's flawed thinking also. Maybe just the idea of like when we're younger, more group, when we're, when we're older, when we're high school, when we're college alone, alone, alone learning, like that, that's part of the whole, it's been baked into me, but I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts is moving from where you've been teaching and where you will be teaching?
1: Right, so yeah, coming from a school where I might've come at this before thinking, well, I should be doing more group and collective work because that is the culture of my students where now I'm going to a school that's predominantly white. So I'm saying the why is different, but that doesn't mean I'm still not going to do it. So for me, now the why is not, I should be doing group and collective activities because that's the culture of the student. Now it's because I think it's what's good for kids. <laughs> I think it's what's good for yeah, so exactly. learning. And it's going to help them develop social skills and it's going to help them develop some of those executive functioning skills and some of those 21st century skills. You know, right. um, So yeah, I think the why perhaps is little bit different but that doesn't mean that the task is necessarily going to be different if that makes sense
0: right and and this is also not to take for granted that where you're going um everybody has the exact same upbringing because you you know even even within families of the same race and class there's going to be some differences but oh
1: of course yeah yeah. Yeah. So then the next um, section also talks about the importance of the oral tradition versus written tradition. So which cultures value one tradition over another? So as we said earlier, you know, if we think about Western European traditions being highly, you know, written down, especially if we're thinking about music, and we're thinking about what we've always said is music literacy, meaning Western European notation, and this idea of, you know, making sure that we are embracing the oral tradition in our class class as well. Um, And for me, I'm really good with keeping things within the oral tradition as the students are younger. But for me, as the students get older, I do less of that, you know, quote, unquote, rote teaching, or I do less of that call and response stuff, because I feel like I'm relying more heavily on notation with older students. And for me, this is something that I'm always working on and challenging myself more is to not have everything be rooted in notation. And this is also getting out of the um, you know, Kodai-inspired mindset of everything has to get back to some sort of a concept, um, you know, either a rhythmic or melodic concept. And that music, just for the sake of music and music that is created orally and orally with call and response, with improvisation, like that's all good stuff too. And I need yes. to make space for that in my classroom.
0: Well, and can I also mention that we we can't deny the impact of covid and the years we've been and you know the last two years plus um having such a great impact on how students have developed or not developed in their group skills right Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna i'm gonna read from page 28 the oral tradition places a heavy emphasis on relationships because the process connects the speaker and listener in a communal experience so that communal experience on zoom looked yeah. very different um, and r- did not really require all participants to really be there right right 100%. even though they're there they're they're, uh, you know in contrast a written tradition does not require much person-to-person interaction or dialogue because thoughts are committed to print so I was thinking about all of the assignments that I had with with classes that were asynchronous yeah. and where the, the task was watch this respond listen to this respond do this and play along or sing along and respond yeah. um and how that really that isolation i think we're going to be feeling that from our students and i see this within my own children right mm-hmm. um we just had a piano recital and m- my daughter, your daughter, played in the piano recital. And I was concerned a little bit about the little the speaking bit um, right the you know, being oral and talking and and she had to introduce one of the pieces that another student played, and that's something that I had her practice several times because she's just gotten out of the habit honestly, of really conveying things orally mm-hmm. and communicating that way and and writing. Now, being who she is and being a middle schooler, she's kind of closed down and does not speak a lot, honestly. Yeah. Like in big group settings.
1: Sure. Yeah. This is definitely something we're fighting and coming out of, I'm still in, but coming out of COVID is, is, yeah, something we have to think about. And in our music classrooms, how many of us didn't do as much singing and didn't do as much, you know, verbal things because we were afraid of the masks and the particles and all the stuff so what can we do to to bring that back and place high importance of that singing and solo singing and all of that too the importance of that
0: yeah so yeah that that was really very interesting and lots of connections to music um yeah for sure all right and then let's see are we oh boy
1: well it definitely gives some more things in um The second chapter, things to think about as far as um, implicit bias and structural racialization. I mean, just just lots of things to build our own capacity and background knowledge and what's going on. Um, and then there was a, a section about culture of poverty and this, you know, misnomer of the culture of poverty, which was really interesting because this is something that I've definitely had many discussions with other educators in my Title One buildings before. Is it about race or is it about poverty? Is it about the yeah. intersection of the two? And what she really got to, which which made sense to me, is that it's not necessarily a culture of poverty, but what we see within, you know, generation or. Um, The cycle of poverty, this generational poverty, are things that are responses to that. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, things that we are stereotypes of this culture of poverty. They're not necessarily a culture itself, but they are responses to um, situational poverty. So things that are going on in that in that community. Um, And and the the impact of PTSD on these students in coming from generational poverty is huge. The statistic that she mentions, I'm just going to read it. Um, She said, Dr. Victor Carrion and his colleagues of Stanford's Early Life Stress Research Program point out that as many of one-third of children living in our country's urban neighborhoods have PTSD, nearly twice yeah. the rate reported for troops returning from war zones in Iraq. And this yeah. is so huge. And I've seen some research about um, the, the effects of PTSD on kids and how what it looks like is it looks like um, – adhd symptoms it looks like attention deficit things and so oftentimes mm-hmm. kids are getting medicine and med- medication for adhd but it's not really treating ptsd so it's not necessarily working so a right. lot of our students who have hard times you know attending and, and focusing in class it's not adhd it's ptsd so anyways that's a whole tangent that i could go on no and, time, and that's but...
0: there's many be- been many books about that and and I really need to do a deeper dive and really truly understanding um, that because I like you I have struggled with the whole idea of you know race versus socioeconomic position and yeah it's all you don't know what you don't know
1: Right. right right um So, yeah, I'm trying to get culture of poverty out of my lexicon because I'm going to read one more quote that I think is helpful. Um, She says, coping skills are mistaken for norms and beliefs. What appears to be a culture, quote unquote, norms, beliefs, and behaviors that are transmitted from one generation to another or more accurately coping and survival mechanisms that help marginalized communities navigate um, racial and economic caste systems. Yeah. So, anyways, that's a big to chew but um... yeah and i
0: want to read more on that because i'm i'm interested i'm I'm really interested in generational poverty and and how that transpires over time and i mean i think it's really it's 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 a huge problem
1: it is and it's the cycle of poverty Yeah, and it's not something to ignore or a dis- discount, but I think what's important for me, what I was learning in this chapter is that it's not culture. That that okay. is it's different than culture. It's still something to understand and respond to as an educator, but the response is different, right?
0: Right. And and failure to recognize the political structures that we have in place that keep certain races classes down mm-hmm. is extremely important. Um, it just, it, I, it seems to always go back to what political structures that do we have that we just take for granted that are a-okay, that are continuously not allowing people to be successful in life. And and that's and that's huge and so whenever someone says teaching's not political stay in your lane just put your head down and teach music teaching is extremely political because you have to take the culture you have to take culture in and understand the impact of that and within that you have to understand also um what's not culture like you were saying um and and what is things that we just take as normalized normalized Um, society, and and how that's detrimental to so many different people. Um, And then kind of along that same line, and this is earlier in the chapter, I really thought it was very Fascinating and very true, because this is a structural problem within public education. Often, and I'm quoting from page 30 at the bottom, often under-resourced urban schools are staffed with by new teachers or teachers deemed less effective, which is very true. Uh, A challenging medical case gets into the attention of top specialists and skilled surgeons. It would be considered malpractice to put someone unskilled or new to the profession on a complicated medical case. So we're talking about, like, we have new teachers. We have teachers who um, are not highly effective, and they go to the most needy schools, the schools that need the most qualified and skilled teachers and this is a huge problem in our country like united states wide and i know that i i don't know where it's at right now but i know in our school district and i can't remember what it's called maybe you know carrie but there is an initiative initiative that they're trying to get through where people teachers who are teaching in underserved higher um affected schools will get paid more simply. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, they're trying to do a Title One stipend, basically. Exactly, so a, a Title, Title I One stipend. School, you get a stipend, and you know, even though I'm leaving a Title One school to go to a school that's not a Title One school, I 100% support it because I've seen this in my entire career teaching in Title One schools: the amount of turnover that we have in Title right. One schools, the lack of experience of teachers, and that's not saying teachers right out of college aren't good because they're amazing, amazing teachers who are ready to hit the ground running. But you know, just historically, yes the amount of um, lack of veteran teachers or lack of experienced teachers in Title I schools um, and in quote-unquote urban schools is it's a huge issue. It uh, is
0: and I think that Title I teachers specifically need to have different trainings mm -hmm. and more trainings and there's no amount of self-care in the world that's going to keep a teacher from being burned out if they are not given help if they're not if they're not trained well, um, that's it's that's such a huge problem because we are, are – are we at a teacher shortage yet? Are we there? Are we... I'm
1: sure. We must be. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's been so, threatening it and talking about it for so it's long. Just gonna it's just going to get worse and worse if yeah. we
0: don't support new educators, especially in these schools. Because I can't – if I had started in a Title I school, I mean, I was not an awesome teacher, my first 3 years. And I don't not even one year, like 3 years, I was I was pretty like just didn't know what I was doing. Um, and if I had been in a title 1 school, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be teaching.
1: Yeah. That
0: would have really just killed it all for me.
1: Yeah. It's hard, so. It's hard. It's very it's hard.
0: challenging, but that's another topic. We should move on.
1: <laughs> we should. All right. So chapter three is called, This is Your Brain on Culture. And this is really a chapter that digs into physical structures of the brain and how all of these different brain responses can affect the way that we, that we think about working with kids. And I will say, I found this to be interesting and something that it's kind of always been on my, you know, to-do list of like, learn more about how the brain works. Learn more about these different systems and these different response systems in our brain. Um, because when you think about things in such a, you know, a linear way of like the brain acts this way, therefore we should think about it this way. It really makes things click as far as things that I've seen my students do, but I've never been able to put into words why, you know what I mean? So this is really has was really helpful um so yeah just know when if you haven't read yet you're going to be reading um this is this is all about how the brain works and if you've done a lot of work on this up before maybe you can read it quickly but for me i i read it slowly and took a lot of did a lot of highlighting and a lot of I,
0: yeah so- i have so many highlights and i don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of like the different brain regions be- and this is probably things i know that i i have been introduced to before and i have learned this and relearned this because there's so much to it um i think one of the the bottom lines of this is that learners need to feel unthreatened Mm -hmm. and they need to be in a community that they feel um, safe in and that they can make connections with other people in in order to learn and then i know we've said it before and we'll say it again, that relationships are huge as far as not only building community, but making learners feel, making, putting learners in a place where they can learn because their brain is not in a flight, fight or freeze mode. Right. Um, and there's, yeah, there's lots. Yeah
1: page 45 really summarizes it well because this is a section that talks about the nervous system specifically and it says an important takeaway is that through the nervous system that individuals build the physical foundation for positive receptive relationships relationships are not just emotional they have a physical component relationships exist at the intersection of mind and body so you know when we talk about you know the social emotional learning and all of this stuff it's not just this oh foo-foo feel good happy happy thing like we are really getting at the root of what kids brains need to function correctly in an academic setting and in any community Um, you know this stuff is important and if we don't address it kids can't learn correctly is really what we're getting at
0: and in the middle of the page the body starts to produce stress hormones that make learning nearly impossible and i just think about my own specific experiences i can think of a situation Um, last year, in which something happened that um, was like extreme stress to me immediately. And then I had to sit in a lecture um, online. And I don't remember anything. I was just that whole time, I was I was thinking about, Oh my, what do I do about this situation? What, what's my next move? Oh, I'm so angry. Oh, I'm so stressed out. Oh, I can't like, okay, focus on the focus on the speaker, Tanya. Come on. You're a grown person. You can do this. And you know what? I couldn't do it. I can't remember anything that happened in that lecture and yeah, it was online. I can point to other things that might've been, but really it was something happened five minutes before and it just put me in a tailspin. And then I was thinking, oh my gosh, can you imagine like a student coming to school, maybe let's just take something really innocuous. They woke up late and they had to rush to get to school on time. It's gonna take a while before their stress hormones are not flooding their system, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it. I mean, we see it as, you know, quote unquote, specials teachers, amp teachers, as we call it in our district. If something happened on the playground or in class right before the kids came to us, sometimes we have, to, we can't teach music yet because we have to help students process and de escalate and figure that stuff out in a perfect world that would have happened before they came to us. But we know that what we do in our classroom doesn't Exist within a bubble. And again, this goes back to what you're teaching, what you were saying about teachers who are like, well, I just teach music. I don't worry about all that other stuff. It's like, but that other stuff affects how you teach music. How can it not? You have to get at the root of what's going on with our kids. And it's hard. We understand that we have a limited amount of time and we see so many students. So we know we can't know every single detail about every single one of our students' lives all the time. But if we see that students are experiencing a high level of stress when they're coming to our classroom. We need to get at the root of what's happening and how we can help them. You know, get to a place where they're ready to learn again. And if we ignore it and say, "Well, that happened on the playground. That's not my problem." Now, all of a sudden, you've created a wall where that student can't learn that day, and that's exactly. on you. That's on you. And your- not only
0: that, but you have damaged the relationship because you've shown yourself as a, as someone who doesn't care.
1: Yeah, to get
0: them you know, in a place ready to learn, not just ready to learn, but that cares about them. Um, And yeah, and I am ashamed to admit that as a very inexperienced teacher, that I did have that attitude when kids would come in, riled up for whatever reason. I was like, oh my goodness, why can't they just put it aside? Let's just, we're doing music now, put like hanging up at the door. And it's just simply, it's just simply not possible. And shout out to Calm Down Corners or, you know, whatever you want to call your mindfulness area in your room. Um, because I tell you, maybe years ago, I would maybe would have thought, oh, that's, that's just, kids are going to take advantage and they're just going to go there when they don't need to. And they're just going to, um, take time and do it to not engage musically. And, you know, if a student is honestly needing time to calm down and, has a place where they can do that and feel okay about that um and not called out because of it that is a really good thing and if you're and this is if your classroom is engaging and fun and awesome kids are going to want to be participating yeah they'll want to do that over playing with my mindfulness bottle right?
1: right If they're spending all that time in the the calm down corner maybe it's not the kid maybe it's you <laughs> <laughs> no but it's true and i was that person and i i am still that person i have this inner battle with myself about peace corners calm down corners sometimes i'm like i'm just not even gonna bother with it um but i i've I've done it, and I've seen the benefit of it, and then it just becomes an individual conversation with that particular kid. The vast majority of kids are not going to abuse that, and if you have one or two kids who are, then you have a conversation with them about what your expectations are, and you solve the problem. But don't create a problem within your mind that's not even there, which is what I always did by just not even providing those opportunities for students to have a safe space to go, right?
0: Yes. And if you notice that you've got four or five kids going to that safe space, (laughs) then maybe you need to change things around and make the entire classroom the safe space.
1: Ooh, (laughs) there you go. That's big thinking, Tanya. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, shall we talk about Chapter 4, preparing to be a culturally responsive practitioner? Because... This is where it gets hard. <laughs> this is a meaty chapter, yeah. I mean, because this is really about you and really digging into you and what your culture is. And so yeah, many this of us was- have heard this before, um, especially if you are, you know, a white, you know, middle, upper class, you know, you're, it's like, well, I don't have a culture, you know, but but we do. We all have a culture. Yeah. Um, you don't realize it when you're in it, especially. Um, but then how does knowing your culture affect how you relate to cultures that are different than yours um, and I
0: admit I, I have been gun shy about that whole idea because I've always been like me I know there's nothing going on I don't I'm a blank slate right. which is really not true you yeah so the whole unpacking our implicit bias I have been noticing things within me like a little bell will go off and I'm like why am I so agitated by this student. And I like the examples that she give, gives, um, like if, if a student were to get up and sharpen a pencil, right. When I'm talking to the whole class, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yes, the I, that would trigger me yeah, for sure. And then I have to examine that. And like, um, yeah, that, that's something that I know that is with, within my own culture is that, I was taught or gleaned or whatever that when someone's leading you leading a group that your attention is you look at them and you listen and you're not getting up and doing other things and I can't assume that everybody comes to my classroom with that in place does that mean that's the way it should be no not necessarily Well, and it's
1: also about sorry, I cut you off. No, go ahead. Communication skills, too, because in this example of the pencil, you know, the teacher says, student, would you like to take your seat? And the student was like, no, I'm going to sharpen my pencil. Well, because the teacher (laughs) framed it in the form of a question. And this is something that, you know, I've. I've heard in myself and as a mentor teacher for other teachers, I I catch with other people as well is, you know, we want to be passive and we don't want to come off too strong. So we ask questions instead of stating what we want. Yeah. And you're
0: relying on their ability to decode that. And that's because because, again, you're assuming that this kid will understand that you are implying they should be sitting down.
1: Right. And And especially the younger the
0: kid is, the more concrete. If you ask that of a kindergartner, that's extremely confusing because, yeah, yeah. the answer is no, I I don't want to sit down. I want to be wandering.
1: Well, and in some cultures, language is just simply more direct. And so if in my white culture I'm used to these questions that aren't really questions, they're they're more directives, but they're framed in the way of a question versus in a different culture – you, you are just told in a more direct way. Um, so that's that's where a lot of that miscommunication comes from. On th- page 59 she says create space for alternate explanations, alternative explanations, excuse me. Many teachers don't always think about the cultural lens that influences their interpretations of student actions, parent responses or their own instructional styles. Instead, we fall back on our default programming which Leads often to deficit thinking, which is another. Well,
0: so thing let's get fun. into that default programming and yeah. go back to page fifty-seven.
1: Oh, okay. And we're
0: not going to take a. We're going to. Okay, we're not going to take a long time, Carrie. You're we're going to pick, and up. this is where we lay our souls to bear <laughs> i.e., um, doing the work of really. So I don't know. I hate to say it is what it is, but okay, Carrie.
1: Yes. <laughs> Let's talk
0: about your surface culture a little
1: bit. Okay. For okay. everyone to hear. Thank you so much.
0: No, I will chime in as well. Okay. How did your family identify ethnically or racially?
1: Um, white European, you know? Okay. I mean, just, yeah, German, Swiss, English, just white European.
0: Same. Um, where did you live? Urban, suburban, rural community?
1: I was thinking about that question. And I was kind of a little bit baffled. I guess... Uh, you would consider it suburban, although it's not technically a suburb of anything. But I would say, um, I would categorize it best as suburban.
0: Okay, me too. Um, not a, not even a question. I definitely grew. I grew up in a neighborhood called Columbine Knolls South Two. <laughs> and if exactly that's that. not <laughs> your, you know, here's another one. Bam. Um, so very suburban. How would you describe your family's econ? Oh wait. What's the story of your family in America? How is your, has your family been here for generations, a few decades, just a few years?
1: Um, I believe, and I, this is where it's sad that I don't feel like I know, but my great-grandparents or maybe great-great-grandparents, depending on the side of the family, were probably the first generation here in the United States from either Germany or Switzerland, depending on the side of the family.
0: Okay. Um. I have, uh, let's see, my grandparents and my great-grandparents from Louisiana. And I think great, great, also Louisiana, but maybe great, 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 came through Nova Scotia. Um, My extended family on my mom's side and my dad's side are, are Cajuns. Okay, how would you describe your family's economic status? Middle class, upper class, working class, or low income? What did that mean in terms of quality of life? That's, um, that's a crazy. big thing.
1: Solidly middle class um, where, uh, we were comfortable, but definitely not extravagant. Um, I grew up in a single parent household. It was just me and my mom. So that obviously had an effect on the way that we lived as well. But, um, two sets of grandparents who, you know, I would say middle, maybe another middle to upper, but, um, yeah, comfortable, but not extravagant. Um, able to go on vacations, maybe once a year kind of a thing, but not, you know, living a very lavish lifestyle, I would say. I would say the ex- expectation was to graduate high school and to go to college and to have a job and have a family was kind of the expectation growing up as far as, you know, this is what we do in our family.
0: Okay. Um, my mom came from a very large family and definitely lower middle class. My dad came from a very middle class, but very small family, both of them. It was very important for them to leave Louisiana and come to Colorado. Um, my dad went to college and then got a master's and then got a doctorate later on in life. Uh, my family, um, I'm, the, I'm a firstborn and when my mom and dad moved to Colorado and had me, they were middle class, but then my dad, my then we were very much upper middle class Um my dad was a petroleum geologist and worked in oil in the 80s which was very lucrative and so um, we were very upper middle class and then they divorced and there was an oil uh, bust um, and then both of my parents being not married and on their own dropped back down to kind of middle class. So mm-hmm. like the whole class thing has been a roller coaster for my um, growing up family. Mm. But
1: Interesting.
0: in my formative years, it was very upper middle class and I was expected to go to college. My mom did not go um, until much later. My dad did, but both of um their generation were like the first to go to college. Okay. So most of my mom's brothers and sisters did not get a college education. Um, My dad had one brother who was in the army and sadly passed away at age 19. Uh, so not to give my entire family, extended family history, but there was a big expectation that mainly came from my father that I would go to college. I think mostly because both of my parents did not want me to... um I don't know. The expectation was go to college, get a job, probably get a family. Yeah. Yeah. So we already talked about the college thing. Uh, what family folklore stories did you regularly hear growing up? That's that's challenging.
1: Not many. I mean, honestly, I, I don't feel like... I grew up in a somewhat musical family, especially on my dad's side. So I remember, like, Christmases where we'd sing Christmas carols around the piano, which is probably not necessarily... Of everyone's tradition. Um, On my mom's side, not quite so much. I mean, I think I grew up at a time where just the TV was always on a lot, you know, and so I think there was a lot of gather around and watch TV, which kind of took the place of that, I think, for a lot of American families. Um, If anything, I would say, like, Camp growing up going camping was kind of a thing, especially with my mom. Um, So like, ghost stories and campfire stories and like camp songs was definitely a thing growing up in the summertime. But I'd say that's as close to, to Family. And yeah, I mean, family passing on stories. I mean, I remember I had to do a project like in eighth grade where I had to ask my grandma and she told me some stories that were kind of interesting, where she told me about like, quote unquote, gypsies who lived in their rural community in Illinois and how she met some of those, those kids. And that was an influence on her. But other than that, I don't remember my grandparents telling a lot of stories. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, It's interesting thinking about family folklore stories because I feel like I have the remnants of negative um, stories of extended family, but I don't know the bones of it. Like I have grown up and continue to feel that my parents were very anxious to change the narrative Of their lives by leaving Louisiana. And I have an overall, I'm sorry if I have extended family listening, but I'm sure they don't. I have overall negative feelings towards um, where my parents came from. Right. Um, And not just the location regionally, but also just the way their families operated. Um, I have pretty negative views of my parents' upbringing on both sides. Uh, There was Catholic school involved. Um, Catholicism loomed large in both of their childhoods. There was an aversion uh, when I was growing up to Catholicism, especially. And um, there was music in my house all the time. My parents played music all the time. I didn't grow up with the TV um on a lot tv was like an appointment appointment television but my parents are not musicians nobody in my extended family are musicians but they are music lovers and big fans and so i grew up with a lot of music so like i said music i can tell you about folklore stories i just have this overwhelming like do not do not we do not want you to grow up as we grew up Got it. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. And that I think we've already answered some of your family traditions, holidays, foods, rituals. We talked about that. Who are the heroes celebrated in your family and or community? Why? Who are the antiheroes? Who are the bad guys? Interesting. Hmm. Can you think of specifics?
1: I mean, I guess I feel like I grew up in a solid like what I consider like a white American culture of like presidents or heroes, you know, you you regard like patriotic things um, growing up, um, you know, and I remember learning about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and you know, some of those kind of, you know, big figures we think about in like typical, you know, American classrooms. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily within my specific family or community as far as heroes go um, my family doesn't have a particularly strong like military background I suppose if you were grew up in a military family you might feel differently about that um and then like anti-heroes and bad guys I mean I don't know I guess just like I mean, you I remember kids playing like cops and robbers kind of games, so it's like people who commit crimes are are the bad guys, you know, people who who steal and people who go to jail are the bad guys. I mean, that sounds very simplistic, but that's that's what I felt like growing up thinking about those kind of things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would have to say same. I can't think of specific heroes or anything. I mean, I know it sounds cheesy, but honestly, I knew more about like Simon Garfunkel and Beethoven and like musicians, yeah, yeah. but I think that was part of my own interest taking over too that I would yeah. dig a little bit deeper and we had records with liner notes, and I read a lot of liner notes um not and like I said, my family were not my my dad tried to play guitar a bit, but he's not a musician. My mom's not a musician, but they both were very much. You know, th- those were the the constant literal voices, like the Beatles and mm-hmm. um, Neil Diamond. Uh, so a lot of a lot of music. I can't think of. I, I mean, I've mentioned as far as anti heroes go. I think I was always afraid of the Deep South, generally. Yeah,
1: that's
0: interesting. All right, and uh, oh gosh, there's more. Um, so those are all, We should say those loud. are all.
1: Sorry, those are all questions about surface culture. Yes. And these next questions get more into, uh, sorry, what's this one called? Shallow culture, right?
0: Shallow culture. Okay. I'm going to skip a a couple. And I'm going to go to, what, do you have some primary, review primary messages from your upbringing. What did your parents, neighbors, or other authority figures tell you respect looked like? We already talked a lot about this. Or disrespect.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely looking at people while they talk to you. Eye contact was very important. Um, uh, Not interrupting, even though I just interrupted you a second ago. Not interrupting was big. Um, I didn't call people like sir or ma'am or anything like that. But like, you know, like my aunt, I would call her Aunt Julie, not just Julie. Like it was important to have that kind of a title involved when it came to speaking to You know, elders or family members, Um, you know, teachers were were always Mr. or Mrs. You know, or Ms. We never had first name or anything like that. Um, So yeah, just in general, respect was doing as you were told, (laughs) listening, um, looking at people in the eye. Um, I remember, you know, as I was becoming an adult, learning how to shake hands, like if you're going to be going on any sort of interview or any sort of, you know, college application kind of thing, you learn how to shake hands properly and dressing for success, dressing for the, the situation you're in um, was something that was very much taught to me. Um, yeah. And the disrespect was very much like interrupting, not listening, not doing as you were told, really.
0: Yeah, that that's really fascinating because like, as I'm thinking about this, so much of those messages I think I've carried well into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And it's only recently that I've been questioning them. Yes. Um, one thing about, because uh, I agree eye contact, non interrupting, listening, but let's talk about the ma'am or sir thing. Mm. Because my parents both had to answer yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And they explicitly avoided teaching us that they disliked right. that right. that was a form of disrespect if yes ma'am came from my mouth you knew i was being sassy ah okay that's
1: interesting. because i
0: learned pretty quickly and i don't i don't have a specific instance of how but i learned pretty quickly that my parents did not want to hear yes, yes. sir yeah. or yes ma'am that was because they yeah they were triggered by it and they rejected that and i think it was very interesting because visiting louisiana i think me and my um younger sister got some judgment on us from not answering yes sir yes ma'am
1: right it was the opposite there so you had yeah. to switch your way of thinking yeah yeah
0: you essentially had to code switch yeah yeah um interesting Let's see. I'm going to skip down. Okay. Oh, Hmm. Hmm. What, Ooh, that's what earned you praise as a child?
1: Mm, Definitely doing well in school. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think about school as being a big thing. I'm doing well in school, doing well in performances. Um, you know, as I became a musician, you know, getting a good chair in the orchestra, getting a solo in the choir, getting a good part in the musical. Um, being a part of, you know, school clubs and, and things like that. Um, I myself was not very sporty. Um, my dad's side of the family, all of my cousins are way more into sports. So for them, a lot of them, it was, you know, being on the varsity team, um, going to state football, that kind of stuff was was big on that side of the family. Um, but yeah, just doing really well in school. And you know, I think being just kind of an all around kind of person um, meaning, like, I did a little sports, I was good in school, I was good at music, and I just, you know, I was a happy kid, and I was a respectful kid to people around me, I had a good group of friends, I wasn't rebellious, so just kind of being that, like, just middle of the road as far as, like, not too extreme one way or the other, does that make sense? Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same. Like, I was not sporty kid at all, and I was not pressured to I, I did soccer for a few years and I hated it and I just did it because I thought it was expected and I remember my mom said you can quit if you don't like this and I went really cool I'm out um, but there was never I don't know where I got that idea that I had to continue on something that I didn't like um, I was uh, yeah into music um, dance singing I had a lot because my parents um, were upper middle class and and that was a new thing i was enrolled in lots and lots of things i did girl scouts and dance and gymnastics and um, choir and summer theater and um, that's an interesting difference that i've noticed between me and my husband because when we had children and it came time for like okay well it's summer and now i just my expectation was that and now the kids will do all these extra Camps And my um, husband, he grew up with two older brothers, and his summer life was, and now everyone, all the kids will jump on their bikes and go and explore and be gone until sunset Mm -hmm. because they didn't do all of that extra. So that's interesting things that we take for granted um, because I was praised in all of these different outside-of-school things, and I was an average, very average student. But, yes, my dad really did value, especially my dad, Um, good grades and good essays and reading was something that was just um, a lifeblood in my family. And so there was a lot of that, but it's interesting that we take these things for granted in our own families, especially when you start to build a family with somebody else.
1: Yeah. And I would add to now that I'm thinking, I think growing up in a single parent household and being definitely a latchkey kid, (laughs) meaning like, you know, I would go home from school and be by myself till my mom got home from work. Being self-sufficient was, I think, something that was just expected and praised as well. Like I did my homework. I practiced piano. I did all the things I needed to do without someone telling me to do it because it was what I needed to do. And that's definitely something I know that I've um found value as a mom too with my own kids is like they have a checklist of what they need to do when they get home from school whether I'm here or not to tell them what they need to do and I think about that 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 definitely comes from my upbringing of being expected to do those things too.
0: Same except for I will say now right now with my own children the checklists are not working right now and I'm having struggling big time because I am questioning like why don't you just do this because you're supposed to do this? Yeah. Um, why do I have to ask over and over again? Because I have my own checklist as a, <laughs> right. a grown-up and I'm working through it. And I know I have my times where I procrastinate, but, and maybe this is like developmentally. I, I mean, I know sure. part of it is that yeah. this is like middle school and high school. Yeah. Um, that yeah. kind of brings us to what's your family's community's relationship with time?
1: Mm. Oh very much timely Uh, I I get extremely Stressed out if I'm late somewhere And this definitely comes from my mother We were always five minutes early to everything She hated being late I hate being late Um, My husband tends to be a little late To things but not extremely late Not like extremely rude late Just like slightly annoying late, And it's not all the time. It's just sometimes, you know, like if he tells me I'm going to be home from work at this time, I usually just give him a 10 minute window in my own mind. So I don't get irritated kind of a thing. Um, Yeah. Timeliness is very important.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Your husband and my husband are very similar in that vein because yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've had the same kind of conversation in my head. Like, well, he said he's going to be home between four and five, but You know, since it's not a a hard deadline, let's just say five and six. Yeah, because
1: then you don't get mad on the other end, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that growing up, uh, my family's relationship with time had a lot to do with the time of year.
1: Ah. So
0: during a school year, we are very punctual. And, yeah, my parents were very much, if you're not five or ten minutes early, you're late. Yeah. And, um again i'm struggling because i feel like i'm the only one in my family right now that adheres to that yeah um and yeah that's a that's a challenge uh, but i will say that in summer growing up summer days were like big swaths of empty canvas oh
1: yeah
0: and there was a lot of lazing about and um doing whatever i wanted yes. so but that was i i know now that 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 was a luxury too.
1: Sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: All right. Well, that's not all the things, but no. there you go.
1: It's definitely yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and as to be expected, when you said we were going to do this, I'm like, we'll probably have a lot of the same answers because we grew up not exactly the same. There's obviously some differences, but um I know other people who will go through these questions will have completely different answers than we did, and that's the whole point, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think the bottom line is that let's not take for granted that how you grew up has, it defines exactly how you're going to react and your expectations of not just you and your own family, but your students. Right. And as a brand new teacher, I remember more than once being annoyed about a lack of respect shown to me mm-hmm. or what I perceived as a lack of respect. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's very common as a newer teacher too, because you're very heightened aware of that, because you're unsure of your, um, of your worth, of your like, wow, do I deserve to be respected? And yes, I do, and no, I don't, and yeah, I don't know. It, maybe that yeah. was just me. Doesn't everyone yeah. do that?
1: Sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's why there's a whole section here about identifying your triggers and knowing your triggers, labeling those feelings and practicing that self-management. Um, I mean, there could be a whole book about that and I would read it. Oh, um, yeah. And that, I mean, I guess for me, it doesn't mean that you're, it's not okay to have certain expectations. I think the important part is communicating them with kids, yeah. you know? So like, for example, you know, sit spots, I have sit spots in my class. And if a kid even starts to touch that. That sit spot and it starts to make that click sound, I lose my mind. So I tell the kids early on in the year, these sit spots are something that really, it, it really bothers me if you're playing with them because the sound bothers me, but it also bothers me if they get moved and I have to reset them later, that's a waste of my time. So I'm letting you know now, it's very important to me that you don't play with them. And if you're yes. needing a, a fidget or if you're needing to do something with your hands, I can help you with that. I have some tools to help you manage that with these sit spots is not an option. And I just lay yes. that out at the beginning of the year. And the reason why I bring that up is I went and observed another teacher who had sit spots and her kids were constantly playing with them. And it obviously didn't bother her. And the kids were still learning and music was still happening, but it was a trigger for me. It was a huge trigger for me. And I had a hard time focusing watching this teacher. So, you know, it's, it's not necessarily saying, it's not okay to have those triggers, because I think it is. It's just labeling it and letting your students know, you know, what your limits are when it comes to those things, but then also understanding when they're doing something, it's not to intentionally bother you. It's a trigger for you, and you need to, to figure out a way to make that work with that kid. Right.
0: Well, it's a trigger that you can turn into an expectation, depending on if you've got good reasons for it, right?
1: Exactly, and that's yeah. what it is. It was labeling the reasons. If I just say, don't play with the sit, spot, sit spots, that gets on my nerves. But by me telling them, it's the sound that bothers me. And it's also the fact that I know I'm going to have to spend time putting it back later. That's what bothers me, not just playing with it. Um, Yeah, I think taking the time to explain your why is important. Yes. And
0: I've got a trigger like that as well. um, That in in the beginning of the year, you lay the groundwork for this. But uh, when I hear kids randomly go over to an instrument and play it,
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That that is.
0: <laughs> <Me too. laughs> if you want, do you wanna see Miss Lejeune go ballistic? Yeah. Walk on over to that Glockenspiel and start tapping on it. Right. Um yeah. And I I have tamed myself so that I uh, Like a ballistic inside, let's be honest. But I try to make it clear several times throughout the year, and not in a harsh way, that like, hey, there's a time for us to play the instruments. There's a time for us to listen. There's a time for us to sing. There's a time for us to move. And sometimes those times will combine, right? Maybe we'll move, and then we'll also play Maraca. But I'll let you know. Meanwhile, if I'm given instructions, or if we're doing group work, like, Let's say we're in small groups around the room. Would that be okay if someone wanders over and starts tapping on tone blocks? Not so much.
1: Yeah. I right. think expectations are great. It's yes. just about communicating and managing.
0: And as, as music teachers, I'm sure we all could make a big list, like taking off bars by of
1: yeah. Yeah, <laughs> of the yeah. phones
0: and telephones or all of that.
1: Yeah, totally. yeah. Well, that kind of wraps up our highlights of these first there's, four chapters.
0: There's more about labels. There's, like, there's so yeah. But so, this is where it's great to have some time and, and have a notebook and write down things that set you off, your feelings about it, um, and create a plan to deal with those things.
1: Sure. So what we'll do after we post this episode is we'll we'll have a few different, you know, things on social media that you are, you know, encouraged to respond to. If you're reading along with us, you know, we won't post any of the super heavy questions because that might not be something you wanna, you know, type out for the world to see. But, you know, just some ways for us to process together what's going on in this book, um, you know, and and by writing it, hopefully that helps solidify some ideas and thoughts in your head. So we encourage you to uh, make sure you are following us on Instagram and or Facebook and uh add your thoughts to our post about what you were thinking during part 1 of this book. Yes. So now it's time for the CODA section where we share something we're enjoying. And, of course, it's summer, so it's out of the music room specifically. I mean, it could be still music education related or not, whatever. So uh, something we've been enjoying lately. Tanya, what have you been enjoying?
0: Oh, right. I get to geek out over Kate Bush.
1: Oh, boy. Here oh, we go. boy.
0: And <laughs> maybe maybe you've heard, I don't know, it's kind of a thing right now, Um, that the latest episode of Stranger Things, which we've only watched the first who or sorry, the latest season uh-huh. of Stranger Things, which recently dropped, includes a Kate Bush song called "Running Up That Hill," and so, okay, we've we've established the whole Gen X thing. As a um, kid who was really influenced by Kate Bush, um, I'm just thrilled that people are discovering Kate Bush! Yay! Because um, Kate Bush has been a musical hero of mine. Uh, Since I was about 12 or 13 and I have kept abreast of everything. She's done um, For a very long time and her music has helped me out in many a troubling time Um, and I love Kate Bush so yeah, the song Running Up That That Hill has been very, very popular and, and talked about a lot. And it comes from an album, Hounds of Love. And if you are interested in going deeper with Kate Bush, Hounds of Love is an album that is a good gateway towards the rest of Kate Bush. Her earlier albums, which I love, 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 that let's just say it's quirky, strange, and not lovely, um, but awesome. So she's a very very English musician and um, singer-songwriter, but the album Hounds of Love, please, if you listen, don't shuffle it. It's meant to be listened to like from the first track to the last track and the second side of the album, which I know I'm talking about albums and that doesn't mean anything anymore. But anyway, um, the second half of the album is really called The Ninth Wave and it's essentially a song cycle about someone who is trapped in water, trapped in the water, Um, has fallen off a ship or something and like the different thoughts and feelings um, during that time where they're stranded in water. And anyway, it was like really the first song cycle that I really got to know. And it's a lovely um, and sometimes disturbing thing to listen to. But if you like Kate Bush and you want to go deeper, there you go. Hounds of Love is a great album for that.
1: Okay. okay. I, I need to just sit and listen to it all the way through. But there you go. I
0: won't make you do that. You no. don't have to. I,
1: I should. I should. I'm intrigued. Okay. Um, okay, cool.
0: Uh, now how about you, Carrie?
1: Well, time. I know what you're gonna say. Because I already recommended it and made her listen to. So I listened to the audiobook of Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. It was recommended to me by my sister-in-law a week ago. And then I, I checked it out from the library and completely ingested it in like three days. And it is just a great book. And the audiobook specifically is just done so well. Um, so, I mean, the general premise, I can just kind of read it from Goodreads, um, is about a woman who finds meaning in her life when she begins caring for two children with remarkable and disturbing abilities. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's set in Tennessee in the South and the way the audiobook is read with, with, the, with the accents and inflections just really makes it come to life. I wish I would have, I didn't write down who the reader was. Do you remember? It's, it's something
0: Ireland. Um, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Ireland but and she it was does specific- such an awesome job with all the yeah. voices
1: and my sister-in-law specifically recommended to me because she said she did a book club with some friends, and some of them listened, and some of them read. And she said the people who listened got a much better experience. She said definitely listen to it. Um, anyways, it's quirky. I would definitely describe it as you know kind of dark humor. Um, but it's if you're looking for just a fun summer read or fun summer listen, it, definitely give it a try. Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. Really,
0: I loved really it. I yeah, because yeah, I was listening around the same time. Because when you mentioned it, I went, oh yeah, I actually have that audiobook, and I've never given it a listen. And so- same thing i did nothing but listen to it in the last few days
1: yeah yeah and it's it. it's heartwarming but also funny and you know slightly and, uh, disturbing at times but nothing trigger warning
0: weird. um there's a lot of f-bombs which i thought oh, right. were entirely appropriate and, oh, and yeah. fit, fit the narrator completely and um but if if you've got issues with that <clears throat> or there's no about- yeah. There's no sex scenes. There, no. This is not about that at all, no. but there's lots of F-bombs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The language. I, I was listening to this a lot in the car because I've been doing a lot of shuffling my kids to and from summer activities, speaking of that earlier. And so I would listen to music or something else, dropping them off. And then as soon as they got out of the car, I was like, okay, book back on. Because when I was by myself, I felt much more comfortable well, listening I to made
0: it. my I made my kids listen because, yeah, it we're we're listening to we're hearing f-bombs we're you of are the at a
1: different phase of life and than i am when it comes to your children and, and f-bombs but yeah and they anyway, thought it was funny it's, too it's so. a good one so we'll link to all of this stuff in the show notes so you can find it too
0: yeah we've reached the double bar line thank you for listening to music teacher coffee talk show notes can be found at music You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk.
1: If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. And we always appreciate folks buying us a coffee, so look for that link on our show notes and on our Facebook page. In our next episode, we'll be talking about Part 2 of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. That episode is scheduled to drop around July 3rd. Until next time, this is Carrie.
0: And this is Tanya wishing you happy musicking!